Hello, and welcome to the August 2007 podcast of Ordinary Means. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here today, uh, again with Matt Bowling. Hey, Sean. And we're also here with Jack Kinnear. Hello, Hi. Jack. Uh, we're here sitting at uh, Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and where are we? We're in Pittsburgh. We're in Pittsburgh. We're in Pittsburgh. Uh, we're sitting here in Jack's office. Jack is the adjunct professor of New Testament here at Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary, as well as the director of the Doctor of Ministry program. I so badly want to say the Demon program, but I know that's yeah, not going to sound right. I know. They, that's because they put me in charge of demons. <laughs> My goodness. Well, Jack, it's um, when, when was the last time we chatted? It was probably six months ago you Something were on the like podcast? That. Yeah, we were out of your place. Well, it's good to, uh, good to have you again. And one of the things we, uh, we want to, we'll just start right in here. One of the things we wanted to talk to you about is I know that off the air, Matt and I and you have all talked about the Federal Vision. We were all there at General Assembly this year uh, for the PCA. And uh, we talked quite a bit about these declarations that were made and some of the uh, concerns that we had. And one of the things, Jack, you've said to me uh, countless times now is that one of the big problems with the Federal Vision is that their exegetical work is lacking. They've got some good concerns. Uh, you've said to me, if you press them, most of these guys will be will come out orthodox. But for the most part, they're not doing the exegesis. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, as I look at their material and interact with their arguments, it seems to me that what they've not done is look very carefully at the usage of words in Scripture, in the original languages, uh, the patterns of connection, the forms of expression, and have instead drawn rather large... Uh, jumping conclusions which don't really stand up when you begin to evaluate the details of the position. Um, often there's a fair amount of probably unintended equivocation in the use of language. An example you'll hear is that, uh, that uh, the covenant as it was made with Adam is like our covenant in that if Adam remained faithful to the covenant he would continue in life, and so if we remain faithful, we will continue in life. And that sounds very good, but what you've done is you've is you've you've created a confusion by equivocation. Because the kind of faithfulness that Adam needed to keep the covenant was a sinless faithfulness, a perfect keeping of the commandment. And what's required of us in the new covenant to inherit eternal life is not a sinless faithfulness. But instead, faith in the work of another and repentance unto life, which are very different things. Adam did not need to have faith in the work of another, and he did not need repentance unto life. So to say that that we, like Adam, have life by faithfully keeping the covenant simply confuses the matter because the, 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 the nature of the covenant is so sufficiently different that what it means to faithfully keep the covenant is very different. Well, and even if you look, I've preached through Hebrews, and we haven't talked about this, but when you look at Hebrews, the way that I summarized Hebrews for my people was um, stick with Jesus, is that it's not a, you know, keep all these commands. It's don't abandon Jesus for something else. And that the, the thing that we're to stick to is his faithfulness for us. Not our, you know what I'm saying? Yes, it, yes, but I, I would like to improve even on that, Matt. Please. Well, we need to stick to 
is his once-for-all obedience and righteousness for us. Again, one of the confusions, and this has been influenced through the work of, uh, of uh, N.T. Wright, is to think that we are saved by the faithfulness of Jesus due to some mistranslations of some texts in Galatians and Romans in that regard. When the Bible speaks of Christ as faithful, it's Christ as faithful to the believer not to allow him to be tested beyond what he can bear. That sort of faithfulness. But when the Bible speaks about what Jesus did to procure salvation for us, it either uses the language of the fulfillment of the law, obedience, righteousness, tikaioma in the Greek, or it uses the language of the sacrificial system. Atonement, redemption, uh, purchasing men for God, and so forth. And so, you know, what is the essence of the difference between the covenant that God made with Adam before the fall and the covenant of grace that he established with his elect after the fall? And we can say that the essence of the difference is in one word, Jesus. There is no need for a incarnate mediator in the pre-fall situation. And there is no need for faith in that incarnate mediator because the terms of the first covenant are the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So as long as you don't eat of it, you don't die. And the continuance in life depends wholly and only on Adam's work. Hmm. So, Jack, if we were to put that another way, they're drawing, it's appropriate to draw lines between Adam and us. Yes. Uh, Adam fell and we fell in Adam. Yes. But in terms of success to the covenant, in relationship to the covenant, uh, the line there becomes a comparison between Adam and Christ, not a comparison between Adam and us. That's right. So that it's through, it goes Adam to Christ and then to us. So it's our connection in Christ uh, that gains a success in the covenant or faithfulness or completion of the covenant. Was there then anything gracious about God's covenant with Adam before the fall? Here again, that's where we bump into this problem of equivocation of meaning. Yes. Um, some of the Puritan writers spoke about the the covenant itself and the life that Adam initially had in the covenant as of grace. And that's okay, because the Greek word grace, charis, means favor, uh, and therefore that which comes from favor, gift, um, and so forth. But we have to be clear that Adam in the garden never had not yet sinned, had not incurred the divine justice, was not under the divine wrath, and therefore did not need grace in the sense that we need grace, or as Adam himself needed grace after the fall, because he was under the wrath of God and the curse for sin. I think, therefore, it's much better to stick with the language of the Westminster Assembly and say that what we have in the covenant at creation is a great uh, condescending of God. God stoops low and provides this covenant, which he's not bound to provide by virtue of anything anything in Adam. Right. and yet we ought to probably be very careful when we use the word grace because grace in the New Testament has such a specialized meaning where it is God's favor to those who have merited disfavor. 
And See, I use the word merit on purpose there. The yeah. the uh, it seems like to me that's I was just looking for that in my Palm Pilot that word condescension because I didn't know if you were going to get there, but I think that's a brilliant word because both grace and condescension have uh, in them that the person doesn't have to. Yes. But the kind of that God didn't have to is very different between Adam's situation and, and ours. If, if we were using the language of the New Testament, that is to say the language of Greek, which I'll do a little bit of here. The language of heaven, right, Jack? Right. Yep. <laughs> when they're not speaking Hebrew. <laughs> yeah, the Old Testament professor, I have a fun joke about that. We'll tell you sometime. You know. But anyway, we find in the New Testament two different words or word families that get translated to English as gift. The one is the word doron, which has, that's the neuter form. It also has a, a masculine and feminine form. And that is derived from the verb didomi. It means to give. What God did in the creation was to give a gift to Adam, namely the covenant of works. But there's another word that, that is sometimes translated into English as gift, and that's the word charisma from the word charis, grace. What we can say, I think, to use the language of the New Testament, is that the covenant of works and all that's involved in it at the creation is doron. It is gift. God gave it. He wasn't bound to give it. But we ought not to call it grace and gift of grace, charis, charisma, because those terms take on the specialized meaning of God's favor to those who deserve instead his wrath. And while Adam had no claim upon God, neither had he offended the divine majesty by sin yet, and so he was not, not under the wrath of God either. And we need to maintain that distinction um, verbally as well as in, in, in conception. That's why I think that to speak of the covenant of works as as a gracious covenant is confusing language. Now, we can so uh, define our words so as we don't misstate what we mean, but we're going to confuse other people who are so used to the use of grace in its New Testament, actually even Old Testament, uh, sense of this unmerited favor to those who merit the opposite. Well, one of the biggest examples of that in the Federal Vision is this use of decretal language uh, in covenantal ways. So they say that a, a baptized infant, for example, is is elect and justified and uh, in union with Christ. Uh, how do we respond to that kind of, again, equivocation yeah, of language? A, a baptized infant may be elect, uh, justified, and in union with Christ. Maybe. Maybe. John the Baptist. Yeah. Um, but what we have to say is that baptism, like circumcision, and of course at the essence of Reformed theology is the, the conviction of the unity of the covenants and therefore of the essential commonality of nature of the sacraments of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That in the Old Covenant, one outwardly was part of the people of God in circumcision but one was not really part of the people of God unless one had the circumcision of the heart Romans 2 so too in the new covenant all of those who are baptized have been outwardly marked as members of the visible church members of the of the community uh, of, of the people of God 
But what they must also have is the inward reality signified in their baptism. That is to say, that inward work of the Spirit converting the heart and uniting the person to Christ. And the New Testament is very clear that it, it consistently refers to those who have in some sense been in the covenant or in the church, but who then are seen as leaving Christ. The, the, the New Testament consistently refers to those people not as elect, but as hardened ones. Not as vessels of mercy, but as vessels of wrath. Not as prepared for mercy, but as prepared for wrath. And that's the language we find, in, especially in Paul in, in, in Romans. And we need to, to maintain that distinction. And again, the New Testament is very clear in distinguishing that not all who are of us are really of us. And I think that's a problem. I think a lot of folks associated with, with the Federal Vision Movement have difficulty with saying this, that there are people who are in the church, but they're not really in the church. That that's a, a difficulty for them. They're, they're awkward about that. And yet Paul says that about the Israelites in Romans when he says not all those who are of Israel are Israel. And John says that uh, in 1 John 2 when he says not all those uh, those who went out from us, but they were not from us. And actually the expression there, from us, is identical in Greek in both sides. They were from us, and yet they were not from us. So they were within the covenant community. In some sense. In some sense. And but not they were in, not authentic members of it. But not in some other sense. And then we have right. to look in Scripture and say, in, in what sense were they not? Right. And it's clear that the sense which they were not is they were not partakers of Christ. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, they were not sharers in him. And both the writer of Hebrews and Paul express union and communion with Christ with a conditional statement, with an if statement, in which this is true if, and the if is if you continue in the faith. Right. So those who, continue, who do not continue in the faith don't meet the, the condition of the if clause, therefore the initial clause is not true for them. The, the example in the Hebrews is, uh, if I can turn to it quickly. Is that Hebrews 6 with them no. tasting no, of Hebrews the Hebrews 3.14. Hebrews 3.14, which, by the way, loses a little bit of oomph in translation. But it's um, a beautiful verse. It makes the whole book yeah. open up for you Yeah, if you get it and, right. And, uh, again, now I'm sight translating, so excuse the little awkwardness of the English. Please. Uh, but I'll give a sort of uh, wooden rendering of the text in the order of the Greek. <clears throat> For sharers of Christ we have become, if the beginning of our confidence unto the end we hold firm. So there's, there's we have become sharers, but there's an if clause. If if we hold the beginning of our confidence firm until the end. So if we do not hold the beginning of our confidence firm to the end, then it, then the inherent logic of the text is, therefore we were not sharers of Christ. We were never united. We were never united to Christ. And again, this is... I'm sometimes amazed at people who say things like, well, all those who are baptized have been united to Christ. And it's almost like what's happening is they're reading the reading uh, theology and thinking about abstract ideas, but not paying attention to what the Bible says. Jesus in Matthew seven twenty three says about a certain class of people um, who professed to be his followers and who did mighty works. I never knew you. 
Now, it doesn't take a whole lot of uh, brain power to realize if Jesus says about those who, who were visibly in the church and were even, in some sense, public workers in the church, I never knew you, but they could not possibly have been in union with Christ, and other than the supposition that Jesus didn't know who was in union with him, which is a silly thing. Right. He obviously knows who are his. Yeah. And he's saying, I never knew you. You're never mine. And so the Lord himself establishes the pattern of thinking in which those who were visibly part of the Christian community or the covenant community, but then at some point are shown to be outside it, not truly saved whether they, they renounce Christ in this life, whether they grow up baptized but never profess the faith, or whether in the case of the Matthew 7 text, they remain as part of the community but show up on the judgment day and Jesus says, I never knew you. The point is, there are a class of people who are baptized, who think they are Christians, whom other Christians think are Christians, but whom Jesus says, I never knew you. But they're weeds, not wheat. Right. Yeah. And uh, the theology of the Westminster Confession is very much built on that text and similar texts like the one in Hebrews. There's one also in Colossians. There's some similar language in John's, in, in, uh, John's Gospel in chapter 10 uh, where we find this kind of formulation. Much of the American Presbyterianism that we have, for example, the, the PCA, uh, when you learn Presbyterian history, one of the things that stood out to me as a member of the PCA is that Really, most of the seminaries that we that are existence now are heirs. The conservative ones are heirs of Old Princeton, which was a it, it, you know Old Princeton was into some senses a, a mishmash. They were on one side of one of the old controversies in American Presbyterianism, and on the other side of another one. Mm-hmm. And so Old Princeton brought together sort of a a warm piety with an orthodoxy. And they weren't uncomfortable with that because they thought that that was being faithful to the Puritans, a warm experiential Calvinism. It strikes me that this is that the Federal Vision is very much opposed to that warm experiential Calvinism that we find in the standards, in the Westminster standards, and that we find in the best of our churches. But frequently it's lost in a, in a lot of churches. Do you see that this is a reaction in some ways to a loss of what our actual heritage is? That may well be. I think there's no doubt that, that some of the folks in Federal Vision are reacting against a uh, conversionistic kind of theology where what I've just said about the distinction between those who are truly in the covenant and those who are just visibly in the covenant has been abused in the sense of calling them to question people's conversion left and right. That's what happened in the First Great Awakening. And some of the leaders in the First Great Awakening, after it was over, said, we really did overstate the case. We really were wrong in calling into question the conversion of folks who didn't immediately jump to our perspective and, and, and join us exactly in what we were doing. And I, and I think that that's, that's part of what's happening there, that, that in some sense... Federal Vision is attacking a straw man. Okay. But not a straw man that doesn't exist, a straw man that is real, but not authentically reformed. What do you mean by that? That is to say that, 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 that some of the concerns they have exist out there in the churches. Right. There are reformed churches that are out of balance in the other direction. It's, re- it's real, but in fact, that's not what creedal theology teaches. And both positions, both Federal Vision and uh, some of, of the other perspective 
that you will find out there are both deviations from uh, the balance in the center of, of the Westminster Assembly's understanding. And this can be really, we can get at this very simply by reminding ourselves how the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines saving faith. Okay. Uh, uh, it defines saving faith as a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Now, however much you want, want to criticize the literature of the Westminster Assembly for being more abstract and less personal as opposed to, say, the language of the Heidelberg Catechism, at that point, that is an incredibly moving statement that faith is receiving and resting upon Christ alone. Yeah. And so there are folks out there in broader evangelicalism and in wings of Presbyterianism who are saying, brother, are you saved? You see? Right. Well, what they should be saying is, brother, are you today receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation? Sanctification is a continual process. Right. But, but I think what we have to stress first is that faith is not a momentary event, but a lifelong uh, inclination of the soul. And what happens is, in broader evangelicalism, faith becomes a momentary event. You see? Have you, than a lifestyle. have you accepted Christ? Have you believed? Not, are you receiving and resting upon Christ? Which the irony is the Federal Vision is making faith an instantaneous event because they're tying everything so tightly to baptism. That may well be the case. Um, I mean, I understand why certain folks uh, put this emphasis on baptism. We find some very strong language in the New Testament about baptism. But that language is all in the context of the whole of Scripture. And so there are implicit limitations intended that do not need to be stated because everybody knows. If you're illiterate in the Bible. Yes. So, so I, I, I'm, I'm an off-road jeeper. Had to get that in there. Yes. <laughs> All right. And in the off-road you jeeping community, you should see a check from Jeep in the mail. In the off-road the jeeping community, yes, um, There are folks. things two, that we all jeeps. know. All right. One of them is put the full Jeep in four-wheel drive before you get into the mud. Okay. Don't wait. <laughs> okay. So if someone comes along and he's got his brand new Jeep and he goes driving into the mud in two-wheel drive and now he has no forward momentum and the, and the four-wheel drive system will not engage, we're just all we're just, we're dying laughing over here because this is because this is this is what people who don't know do. And in the same way, when Paul, you know, uses the language about baptism in a very strong way, we can't forget that he's the one who distinguishes between circumcision of the heart and merely outward circumcision in Romans 2. And that therefore he necessarily wants his readers to understand that there are people who outwardly have the sacrament who don't have its inward reality. He's just not addressing that issue. He doesn't need to mention that. Everybody knows that distinction. Everybody knows you put the thing in four-wheel drive before you drive in the mud. It's that sort of thing. And sometimes folks will say, well, well, you know, Paul uses strong language about baptism, um, and he doesn't qualify himself. Well, all that means is he doesn't qualify himself in that particular location in his text. And that's not a fair reading of any author. Every author is working within a, 
a framework of ideas and concerns, and he limits what he says to that framework. Otherwise, he can't write in a short and concise way. Actually, can't write at all. Because you have to rewrite everything right. every time you've ever said. Right. Yeah. And so having made a distinction earlier, he doesn't need to repeat it. And since Paul was already distinguished between circumcision of the heart and, and merely outward circumcision in chapter 2 of Romans, when he brings in baptism, he can just assume that his readers have remembered that distinction. And, and, and when he's talking about those who are baptized into Christ are baptized into his death, he's talking about those who have not just the outward sign, but the inward reality, who have the baptism of the Spirit inwardly as well as the baptism of water outwardly in their bodies. And it's not that far away. It's in the same book. Right. But what happens is, is when you take that text out of its broader context in the thematic structure of Romans and leave it alone, it can become a pretext for arguing that since Paul says... Um, uh, since we were baptized into Christ, we were baptized into his death. Therefore, all those who are baptized are in union with Christ. That looks good. If the sentence is hanging by itself. Not when you put it in context. Of even just that book. Of that book, yeah. in, in particular. Or more broadly, of, of all of Paul's writings. And then more broadly, of all of Scripture. Right. Um, in fact, if there's anything that we can say represents one of the fundamental lessons taught by the whole Old Testament... It is that mere, mere outward conformity to the covenant is insufficient for salvation. You can have circumcision, you can have the lineage from Abraham, you can have the temple, but if your heart is not converted, then you will end up cast out. And the whole Old Testament story tells that. You have to kind of forget that story and now assume that in the New Covenant, baptism is such a wholly different thing than what was true about the nature of circumcision, that it had an outward meaning and administration and an inward reality only accessible by the direct action of God. That that is now lo no longer true. And now in the New Covenant, baptism combines almost inseparably the outward sign and its meaning with the inner reality. Right. Well, and what's interesting... And the whole Testament mitigate, mitigates against that. That's not true. Right. It's, in a sense, it's sort of a... Uh, sort of a different form of dispensationalism. It's actually positing a, quite a difference between the sacraments. Old I, to New Covenant. Unintentionally, yes. I don't, I mean, I don't they think they want continuity. They want continuity. Yes. But this, is, but this would be a discontinuity. Yes. where the sign and the reality but the are so identified. The, the fundamental reformed understanding is the continuity of the sacraments is in their meaning and nature. Not their efficacy. Yeah, they're, I mean, their well, meaning yeah, and nature, and therefore, saying, and therefore in their efficacy. And therefore in their efficacy. Yes, that, that precisely because the outward administration of circumcision did not necessarily and infallibly convey the circumcision of the heart, Right. So it Absolutely. must be true that the outward administration of baptism does not necessarily and infallibly secure the, 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 the birth by the Spirit uh, in the heart of men, but that the Spirit works when and where he wills according to the election of God. And, and they're positing a different efficacy. Unintentionally. I don't, I don't think they've thought this through. Uh, their position begins to approximate some kind of a... Um, it works in its own working kind of view of the sacrament. I think if you said that, they would, that people would say, well, I, don't, I, mean, I don't want to go there, I don't want to say that. 
but that's what they've done because they've said that if you're baptized, you are therefore in Christ. Now, let's take that phrase. This is another example of the problem of ambiguity. Sure, all those who are baptized are in Christ in the sense that they have been outwardly marked as members of the visible community that Christ owns and possesses. But that's just the old Presbyterian distinction between visible and invisible church. Right. But in fact, they have not been so united to Christ that he now knows them and they know him because he will say to such ones, I never knew you. Or the writer of Hebrews will say, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold firm to the end our confidence. And again, you can't miss the force of that statement in Hebrews. There's a, there's a nuance in Greek there that doesn't fully go through the English because we have become partakers is, is, a, is a Greek perfect. And the perfect tense, uh, it's gagonin in Greek, um, expresses the notion of a, a past event that has consequences that continue at the time of the writing of the word. Um, so we, we have become and are partakers of Christ if we continue in our confidence to the end is the thought of the Apostle Paul. You almost have to, to double the verb to get a full English rendering of that Greek tense um, right. when it occurs because it, it conveys both a past idea and a present consequence and no English tense quite does that. So it's not just that we, we were partakers, but we were and are if. If the if is not met, then we neither were nor are. At present. At right. present. Yeah. One of the one of the pastoral effects that I've seen of this that's that is I was gonna say scared, but it, it makes me very, very uncomfortable. And Achan and I may have talked about this or we may not have gotten to it last month, I can't recall, is that because um, let me follow sort of a train here for you of thought and get your reflection on it. Because we want to say that everybody's baptized is, is actually in Christ, they have all the benefits of Christ except perseverance, um, and, and they have the Spirit in some sense. Now, we don't know if they actually are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, really in the way that the Apostle Paul talks about it, because that's unknowable to us, and they want to say it's unknowable to a believer. So they they are very uncomfortable with somebody saying, you know, are you are you regenerate, Jack? They're uncomfortable with that because they say that's that's way overly introspective. You can't know if you're regenerate. You know what you can know is are you today walking in faithfulness? That's what you can know. And where that ends up with is, as you follow this chain, a law that's keepable. Now they posit this, that this law is keepable by us. Um, and what's interesting about that, for you just preached for me in Mark, and just a little bit earlier in before what you preached in Mark 13 <clears throat> for me, the Pharisees in Jesus' day taking the Ten Commandments and turned it into 613 that they thought they could keep. Jesus takes the Ten Commandments, squishes them down to two that everybody knows that they can't. And so it seems that the, the aim of Jesus experientially is to convince people you can't keep the law. And the aim of these folks pastorally is to convince them that they can. 
not to look to see whether they really have the spirit, but believe that they can and work as though they do and keep this law without ever really answering the question, um, am I saved? Do I have the spirit? And that is so scary pastorally. I, I left Sean a voicemail when he was on vacation. I got done reading Guy Waters' book who we've got on the we've got him referenced in the blog. Um, I got done and I said, these folks are calling people to an obedience that they can't do if they don't really have the spirit because it's an unkeepable law. So I don't know. Maybe reflect on that. You've got many years of pastoral experience. That pastoral train is scary to me. It really is. I think there is always the tendency to to want to make it doable by us hmm. because that feels good. All right. Um, A self-righteousness. It, it, it turns into that. I don't think it's right. necessarily, in, you know, a, a a conscious embracing of that. Right. It turns into that. Um, and, and again, modern Christians, because because they're modern, read the Bible in a profoundly disconnected way. They view the Bible as itself disconnected. In terms of New Testament studies, they view the Gospels as disconnected from each other, um, and the Gospels as disconnected from the Pauline epistles because of the late dating of the Gospels. Uh, the tendency is to view the, the Pauline epistles as the earliest, when in fact they're not. Um, and therefore, all, you almost get you know Paul as earlier than whatever takes place in the, in the gospel narratives, which has come through multiple hands of oral trans, transmission, and now we have before we have. And the effect of all of this is that we fail to see the profound interunity of the teaching of Scripture. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, where they will be comforted. As soon as you reach the point where you're no longer mourning, there's no longer comfort. The mourning is not a momentary event. It is the condition of the converted soul for the whole of this life in which our sanctification is less than perfect and we continue to sin. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied means there must be a continual lifelong hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which there's no need to have if you have now attained to it. If you've risen to the point now where you've ceased to sin and you're and you are faithfully keeping the covenant, that's what scares me about this language. Okay. Yeah. We need to keep the covenant in faith and repentance. But we discover that we are anything but faithful. And again, this is to some extent this again also comes out a new perspective on Paul material. There is this confusion, this equivocation between the concept of faith and the concept of faithfulness. You know, if Adam faithfully kept the covenant, he would have life, and if we faithfully keep the covenant, we will have life. Okay? Uh, and we need, what we need is covenant faithfulness. No, what we need is faith and repentance. Why? Because we never keep the covenant faithfully. That is to say, we're always breaking the law. We're always falling short. Even our even our faith is mixed with with doubt and unbelief. We are always saying, "Lord, help my unbelief." And so, um, it's not that that. Uh, we need faithfulness. What we need is faith in the work of another precisely because we continually prove ourselves to be less than faithful. Which brings us back to David who said that it's the broken and contrite right. heart right. that God will not despise, right. not the 
Uh, and what's, what, what scares me sometimes in some of the rhetoric of federal vision, notice the qualifications there, it's almost as if they want to rise above that level and reach the stage now where, where they are faithfully keeping the covenant. Well, and, and they will secure. tell you, I'm faithfully keeping the covenant because I'm in Christ. That it's Christ keeping his covenant in, in me. me. I find that very scary language because of the danger it poses to the soul that we begin to rest on, on, our, on our faithfulness, not rest on Christ. You see, because the confusion is this, and this confusion exists even in the standard translations at points. Faithfulness by its very nature, and there's a real question whether the Greek word pistis and even the Greek ad- adjective pistos ever really means faithfulness quite in the English sense. It probably only ever arises the idea of, of trustworthiness, reliableness. Um, but uh, leaving that linguistic distinction aside, faithfulness is about what you do. It is profoundly self-centered. Faith is about what someone else did for you. It is trusting in another. And when you confuse the two, then you destroy the nature of the gospel and of the covenant. I will give you an example from Matthew's gospel. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says, properly translated, you have forsaken uh, the, the heavy matters of the law, the judgment, the mercy, and the faith. So the old covenant was about judgment, mercy, and faith. Judgment in the sense of self-discernment, recognition of one's sinfulness. Um, mercy about the, the, the proclamation of the mercy of God to us. And faith, trusting and relying in that God of mercy and his promises. But if you render that, for example, as the NIV does, uh, you have, you have uh, neglected the weighty matters of the law, faithfulness, uh, um, uh, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Hmm. Now you have a picture of people who, who have been insufficiently faithful. What we need is to be not like Israel. We need to be really faithful. Hmm. Which but is the what problem with Israel is not that they were insufficiently faithful. It's that they had a stiff neck and a hard heart, and they needed to be converted. Right. And to trust only in, in, in God and his mercy. And what we need in the new covenant is the same thing. To have a converted heart, a heart born of the spirit, such that we recognize the, the uh, magnitude of our sin and its omnipresence. And realize that our only hope is to flee to Jesus Christ and to his perfect righteousness and to his atoning death. See, and so, so you get the notion floating out there in, in, in Presbyterianism that, well, we need Christ's death now for our initial justification, but we need our good works for the final justification. Okay. Final verdict of justification, yeah. When we show up at the final judgment, and if I pull out my lifelong Christian works, the devil can stand there and say, do you see this one? He was duplicitous in his motives. Do you see this one? He was double-minded in his faith. Do you see this work? He did it for the wrong reason. And every one of my works will fail to the ground, and I will be without any hope before the judgment of God, except Jesus Christ stands up and said, no, for this one, and every one of those sins you pointed out, I paid the price. 
And every failure of obedience, I supplied by my obedience. I know him. He's mine. And my works are in no sense the ground or basis of my justification at the final judgment, which is not really a, really a misuse of the term. We're not justified there. We are publicly announced to have been justified. Or vindicated. Yes, to use language of confession. Um, but more importantly, the, the point we need to see is that all that my works do is they show the rest of the creation that in fact the grace of God has been in me, that I am, that I am a true believer. Okay. Right. Uh, so, so my works don't deliver me from the wrath of God. They instead simply vindicate the truth of the grace of God that is in me. How can you tell if a person has faith by his works? And, the, the, and that's why the scriptures are very clear that the final judgment is not on the basis of works, not on account of works, neither epi nor dia, but kata, according to works. There were the works of the believer, which so that not just God, but now the angelic creation and the human creation can all say, yes, this was one of God's elect. All right, And the, the false believer sh- stands up and he has no works. And all of creation can see that he, he, here was one in whom there was no grace of God. That's what that's the role of good works of the judgment. Um, so we must never rest in them, in themselves, but only rest in Christ and his work for us. So, Jack, does the New Testament teach the imputed righteousness of Christ? I, I love these set of questions. This is wonderful. He's, he's asking me this because, you know... Without your big bat, Jack. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> like, can you read Greek? Or... Can you read most reasonably decent translations? Yeah, of course it does. And very explicitly. Um, And yet over and over again, we're seeing these guys now, starting with N.T. Wright, well, not starting with him, but perhaps most loudly with him, uh, but also these guys in the Federal Vision, Peter Lightheart has come out, Steve Wilkins now has posted a letter online where they're denying the necessity of believing in the imputed righteousness of Christ. Or subsuming it. Maybe you've seen this, Jack, where they subsume it and they say that because we're in Christ, it's it's unneeded. It's, it's, it, it, it's sort of included in the whole package. Yeah. There are a couple sources of this, of this misconception, in my opinion. First of all is the tendency to read to read Paul primarily in terms of the shorter letters in Romans as an addendum. Whereas Romans is the central letter, even though it's not the last, first, it's one of the last ones, is the central letter and the others are really addendums to it. Um, So the legal language of Paul in Romans is at the core of Paul's thought. And of course, Romans 3, 4, and 5 is all about this kind of imputation. Uh, or, Or reckoning, if you will, or however you want to translate the verb logizomai. Um, part of it is the influence that's out there. And it, it, we see it in N.T. Wright. We shouldn't, we shouldn't blame him for everything. It's like he's not, he's not the, the boogeyman or anything. He's made some, I think, conceptual errors understanding Paul that others have picked up on. But for a long time in the 20th century, into the 21st century, in Reform thought, there has been just this confusion about what the phrase, the righteousness of God, means. In Greek, the dikaiosune theou. 
and it's been thought of as being the justice of God, his his attribute of justice. It's been thought of, of as being his his attribute of covenant faithfulness and and the anti right. Uh, people are always e- even the the Reformation study Bible has a really fuzzy and blah note about it. Uh, the righteousness of God, as that term initi- is initiated in Isaiah and the Psalms, and as it comes to completion in its reflection in the writings of Paul and in Peter, by the way. Um, Peter only mentioned Peter only, only two little letters, but it's in Peter. Uh, refers to that righteousness that God provides through His Son. So, when when Paul says, uh, uh, "For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it, um, it is revealed." The righteousness of God. He's not talking. He's not saying that God's God being God 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 being right and good is being revealed. He's not saying God being just is being revealed. He's saying that the promised righteousness that God said He would provide is here. Going back to Isaiah. Going back to Isaiah, where right where where my righteousness is always coupled with my salvation. Has two ways of saying the same thing. So it's a provision of righteousness. It's a provision of righteousness. And so Paul in First Corinthians can speak of Christ as our righteousness, hmm. as well as our sanctification, what have you. Um, and Paul, and, 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 that this, and that the particular structure in Greek, which is a genitive, has the force of an ablative. Didn't you just love that? Okay. It was beautiful. Uh, the, the, Isn't that, aren't those are the, the exercises the ladies do at curbs? Yeah, 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 yeah. The ablatives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, the one of the problems we have is is it is that the Greek construction of the genitive has no single English equivalent. So anytime you translate it, you do something to it. You limit the possibility of meaning. All right. Um, but Paul understands the righteousness of God in in. Philippians as the righteousness that is from God. And he uses the preposition ek, which means from, out of. He's thinking about a gift. And he describes the righteousness of God as that which the uh, unbelieving Israelites failed to uh, arrive at. Phthano uh, in the Greek. And uh, which the Gentiles received katalambano. It's clearly, and then Paul in Romans five seventeen calls it a gift of righteousness, and, uh, um, and therefore the righteousness of God is is, a, is is the gift. Now, if you think about it that way, let me give you a give you a a paraphrase of Romans one sixteen and seventeen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for in it is revealed. That righteousness which is from God, okay, which is out of faith and into faith. It comes from faith and it goes to faith, see, or it's from faith and to faith, okay. Just as it is written, and here's where, again, the translations are wrong, the righteous by faith shall live. It's not the righteous... Shall live by faith. Paul's not talking about how righteous people live. He's talking about how people get to be righteous by faith. And that was the understanding of the text that the uh, reformers had and that the 
uh, Westminster divines had that's reflected in their creedal documents. And it is, it is a very natural, obvious meaning in the Greek text. It sometimes gets a bit obscured and mangled in some of the translations. By the way, one of the best translations of that text is, for all, this will surprise you, the RSV. Hmm. Yeah. Of Romans 1, 16 and 17. Yeah. yeah. Does that carry over into the ESV? No. Uh, the ESV, to me, is a significant disappointment. Hmm. I'm, I'm keeping my NIV. I know it's mistakes. Well, you know, they just released, released version 2.0 of the ESV. Oh, did they fix anything? I, I was scanning through it. I, my software, I haven't found any major differences. Yeah. I, I, I'm not very happy with most of, the, most of the contemporary translations. I think they all started with the King James and went downhill. Rather than starting with the King James and going uphill and improving. They fixed what didn't need fixed and fell away from some of the best traits of the King James. And the King James is much better at not confusing faith and faithfulness. Uh, King James is uh, um, far better at, at 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 least making some of the connections between Old Testament and New Testament language. More obvious. Yeah, more sensitive to the to the role of the of the Septuagint as a connecting uh, a literary work between the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. So in the, in the in the Old Testament uh, you have this this Hebrew word chesed, which the King James renders mercy in most occurrences, but which the modern translations render NAS uh, loving kindness, NIV unfailing love. Um, so the English reader has all this language about God's unfailing love or unloving kindness all through the Psalms and in the giving of the divine name in Exodus 34 and you know, all over the place. Um, in the statements of the, of the of the nature of the covenant uh, in Deuteronomy and, and elsewhere, where uh, God is a is is a is a true God or faithful God who keeps His covenant of love, but the King James actually renders that instead His covenant and mercy, hmm. and so. The word mercy disappears from the Old Testament largely in translation today. And so the English reader doesn't hear the connection when it shows up in the New Testament. But if you think of, of Psalm 136, where, you know, every refrain is answered with, and the mercy of the Lord is forever, or the loving kindness of the Lord is forever, or the love of the Lord is forever. Hear it as, and the mercy of the Lord is forever. Okay. Mm. You know, okay. Time after you know you go through this. I mean, it almost becomes mind-numbing the repetition in, in that particular song. And then Jesus says, "You have forsaken the weighty matters of the law, the mercy." So that the same word in lost. the New Testament that's in the Septuagint, okay, which consistently renders yeah yeah consistently renders the Hebrew word. Mm. So there's a sort of connectedness that's there. Um, that the law was to lead us. To, to mercy. see mercy. Yes. Well, you mentioned that when mentioning the Beatitudes earlier. Right. The Beatitudes are Jesus' response or yep. the fulfillment, if you will, of Deuteronomy 28. Yes. If there, if there is, and I, I should not say this, be broadcast over the Internet, but I will. If there is a complaint to be made about traditional Presbyterian language about the covenant, I would make it this. It is, it's, it's that we have hit upon the phrase covenant of grace as our phrase to describe the unity of all the covenants that are completed in Christ. It might just have been better if we had called it the covenant of mercy. Because we find repeatedly in Scripture the phrase, the covenant and the mercy. 
No, it's a, it's a verbal thing. Covenant grace is a wonderful term. It's fine. Let's use it. It's great. But let's remember that we could just as equally have called it the covenant of mercy. And the advantage of that is, the advantage of that is, that still in English, the word mercy is sufficiently specialized in its, in its usage. But we would never think of saying that the covenant at creation was an expression of mercy. Because mm. Adam had done nothing to deserve punishment yet. Do you think that's why we get the add-on of covenant of redemption? No, that, that language has to do with, with trying to find a term to describe the inner uh, covenant between the Father and the Son and the Spirit to, to accomplish the covenant of grace. Well, our time's almost up. Maybe I'll throw one more question out there for you, Jack, about, about justification. This whole idea, when I originally read Norman Shepherd and, and these 34 theses and you were... You know, you're over in that part of the world towards the end of this controversy. Um, you know, Norman used to talk about, may, you know, one of his theses before the Philadelphia Presbytery was the, an idea of maintaining justification. And you've already touched on, you know, this final verdict of justification will be based in some ways on work. Is that the way the word is used? No, justification, if it's, if it's, if it's mentioned as an existing thing... <clears throat> Well, it would be the verb, wouldn't be the, that only occurs once or twice, um, um, is always in the aorist. If it's, if it's not in the future, talking about something, somebody in the future, you, you will be justified. It's uh, about someone who's not yet believed. Um, it's, all, it's always in the aorist. And the aorist it is, is a Greek tense that simply expresses a undefined past event. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, Romans 5.1. That's an aorist, part, aorist passive participle. So it's not something that is for believers, something yes. that is yet future to be pronounced. No. It's no. something that's no. been pronounced. Justification is future for those who have not yet believed, but will. Right. But for, but for those who have believed, justification is always a past tense. And a simple past tense. It, it, it's, it's, it's done. It's happened. It's an event. Uh, the distinction in... Uh, the Westminster uh, documents between a act of grace, justification, and a work of grace, sanctification, is a way to try to say in English what exists in the tense structure of Greek, that justification is consistently a, when, when used in, in the legal forensic sense, and the word has other usages, but when used in the legal forensic sense of the inclusive forgiveness of sins, is always an aorist, or a future, because the event of believing is yet future. Um, so we have been justified. And, you know, if you listen carefully to Paul, Paul makes it very clear that that solves the issue of the final judgment. And so the Apostle Paul says, much more... Where are you, Jack? Uh, Romans 5.9. nine. Uh, 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 therefore, much more, now having been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from the, from the wrath. Literal translation. Right. Now having been justified, what's the consequence of having not been justified? We will be saved through him from the wrath. So there's the wrath at the final judgment. And because we have now been justified, we will be saved from that wrath. The, the believer approaches the final judgment in the confidence that we have already passed through it. Again, Jesus says this in so many words, or 
John says it if you want to argue about where the Jesus speech ends and the John speech starts in, in John's gospel. Um, when he says um, that he who's believed has passed from death to life, but the one who has not believed is already condemned. You hear the, the, the um, legal language there? Right. You know, oh, yeah. Jesus and John's already- gospel has has all the legal language Paul has in effect. It's just constructed differently. And so the opposite of having life is to be condemned. Hmm. Well, having life, therefore, is the equivalent of being justified in, in Paul's thought. And um, those who do not believe have already been condemned. And those who believe will not be condemned, they have passed from death to life. We have been justified. As soon as we make our passing through the final judgment conditional upon anything we do, we therefore are saying that Christ has not secured it for us, and there is something insufficient in his work. If there's one message... In the scripture, it's that Christ's work is sufficient. sufficient. And I think many folks who are fuzzy in some of these areas of, of the nature of the covenants and, and some of the things we've talked about today have no desire at all to call into question the sufficiency and perfection of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've just stumbled, stumbled I believe, into formulas they haven't thought through the consequences of, and they need to think through them and say, well, this is really not the best way to say this. I'm going to go down a path I don't want to go down. Um, well, Jack, thank you for uh, meeting with us today and always chatting a with us. It's always always good to talk with you. And uh, if you're listening to this, we encourage you to leave your comments and questions at the blog. And uh, anything uh, anything you would like to ask, we're heading towards probably another Q and A uh, podcast coming up here. So put your post your questions there at the blog. And we look forward to talking with you again next month. And until then, may the Lord bless you through his ordinary means of grace.